please stand for the reading of God's word. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am. There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show about what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Please take a moment and meditate on God's word. I haven't given the sermon yet, so I can't say for certain what part of the service will be my favorite part, because it might be an awesome sermon, and that might be my favorite part, but so far it was that offering. I could have just let you sing again and again, Sam. That would have been one of those songs you put on repeat and just get that message down in your soul. Well, this morning we're, we're continuing to make our way towards the new fall sermon series. It's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And as I explained last week, uh, we have to do some preparation in order to get there. And the, the, the image that I have in my head is of a pole vaulter. 
you know, the pole vaulter puts his, uh, his pole in what's called a plant box. And then he launches himself 15 or 20 feet up in the air hoping to get over this bar. But obviously he can't just stand at the plant box and stick the pole in. He has to have some momentum coming up to the bar. And so he runs 40 yards. And if you're a pole vaulter, you count off the number of strides that you need before you get to the plant box. It's all very meticulous, as you might imagine. And so what we're doing is we're taking these strides towards the plant box, towards planning ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount for the fall. And last week we talked about the need for mercy. And this week we're really going to talk and focus on our attention on glory, specifically the glory that God has given through the person of Jesus Christ. And so this particular sermon, this passage that Mike read for us, these 16 verses or so, these are jam-packed verses. I'm not going to be able to cover all of them. And I would say that this particular sermon will take extra work on your part. I mean, some sermons are sort of simple. They're easy to see. They've got two or three points and a good illustration. And you go, yeah, I get it. And I hope you get it. But you're going to have to work a little harder. And then you're going to have to write some things down and then process it with a family member or a friend because there's, there's a lot of depth here that is go, we're just going to sort of float across and we're not be able to get all the way to the bottom of it. But before we get here to John chapter 12, I want us to, to get our bearings in the book of John itself. The, the first uh, uh, 11 chapters, chapter 1 through chapter 11, John walks through three years of ministry with Jesus. And these three years, as you read through these 11 chapters, are marked by what are called signs. That's the word in the, in the Bible. And it's, uh, so, these signs are miracles. There are miracles that Jesus does all the way through these 11 chapters. And all the signs are, are designed to do, as you might imagine, is the sign is not a destination. The sign is telling you you're arriving or you're pointing to the destination. If you decide you want to go to um, Myrtle Beach, it, the sign that's just outside of Wilmington is not your destination. You don't say, well, look, I'm here at the sign. No, the sign is telling you you're, you're moving in the right direction. And all of these signs through the Gospel of John in these first 11 chapters are all meant for you to go, wow, and then look at Jesus. They're not the destination. They're the, the pointer or the arrow to the destination. And the last sign, chapter 11, you can see it there in verse 38, is the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. So you can, not, we're not surprised this is the last sign. Jesus raising someone from the dead is a sign that he himself is going to come out of a tomb one day by God's own power. And so when we get to chapter 12 now, we're sort of turning a corner. And chapter 12 through chapter 20, the last half of the book, takes us through one week in the life of Jesus. So the first 11 chapters are three years, and the last eight chapters are one week. And so just as you would read through a book, you, you notice that John slows way down when he gets to chapter 11. All these details, we need to explain them with a lot more intensity. So I, I've got to slow way down so you don't miss anything in this last week. And you can obviously see the importance that John gives to the last week in the life of Christ. And so we're, we're here in chapter 12. And, and as we go through the gospel, 
you would notice if you had time to read the whole thing, there's a, a growing agitation with Jesus. You look at, we'll look back with me in chapter 12, verse 9. This is right after uh, Jesus has risen uh, or gotten Lazarus out of the tomb. In chapter 12, verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there in Bethany, a small town just outside of Jerusalem, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests, his religious rulers, made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. So they've come to put Jesus to death because everybody's beginning to follow after Jesus. And they decide, well, now that Lazarus is here too, we'll just put them both to death. And you just have to sort of wonder, I mean, what, what, how would Lazarus respond to a death threat? I mean, you know, I've been dead for four days. I mean, I can come back. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how he would respond. But nonetheless, here these religious leaders are coming in and saying, we just don't like somebody moving into our territory. People are going after Jesus. We're not sure about what he's saying. And so we're trying to eliminate him and, and of course, any of his followers. And so you see this ag- growing agitation that happens. And then finally, this word, our that we see in chapter 12, verse 23. Our is a very important word for the writer, for John. John chapter 2, verse 4, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, verse 30, they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then we see here in verse 23 of chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So whatever was on wait, whatever was being pushed, pause, now the hour has arrived here in chapter 12. And so as we look at this passage, and we, we sort of understand where, how we're getting to chapter 12, I want to zoom in uh, just on this one word, glorify. You see it there Uh, In verse 23, it's mentioned three times in verse 28. And so what does this word mean? Glorify, glory, what does it mean? And then the second thing I want to do is is mention three ways the text describes how Jesus is glorified or brings glory to God. So what is glory? And then what does Jesus do to display glory or to bring glory? And then how how can our lives glorify God? Does that make sense? So let's understand what glory is. Let's see what Jesus does. And then let's see an application to ourselves. So first, glory, the hour for glory has come. What does it mean? And and this would be my working definition is the weight of God's reality and character. So a lot of times when you think of holiness, you think of that as separateness. So God is holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He's totally different from us. But then when you have the real manifestation, the weight of God in your presence, you have glory. It's it's God's holiness coming to you face to face. And so let me just give you an example. In Psalm 19, it starts out this way. The heavens declare, what do they declare? The glory of of God. So what the writer is saying is you can't know everything about God by looking at creation, but it comes close. You look at creation, and you go, wow, this is incredible. Whoever created it must also be incredible. 
I know there must be a creator because I'm looking at this incredible creation. And so when you look at when you look at the heavens, when you look at the creation, you know something about God. You know that there must be a creator. And and that this creator must have even more awesome beauty than what you're seeing. So they declare something about the glory of God. So when you get to the hour, verse 23, this is the moment in human history where you get the full weight of God's glory. It, it might be thinking about this. When, when, you, when you experience God's glory in creation, when you go out on your boat or you're out by the ocean or you, the river or whatever you like about creation, you go, God is incredible. That's like holding the weight of an elephant's tail. When you get to the hour, it's like the whole elephant. The creation gives you a little picture, but the hour, the death, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Christ, that's, that's the whole elephant. It's, it's way beyond what we could bear. It's bigger than any one sermon or one sermon series. We're, we're trying to understand God's glory, God's reality, God's character breaks into the world in, in a full weight in this hour. And so when you read John chapter 12, verse 23, God, uh, John intends you as, your, as the writer for you to look back to John chapter 1, verse 14. So when you get to John chapter 12, 23... And Jesus said to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John, the writer, hopes you're remembering John 1.14, which says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And his glory is full of grace and truth. This is John saying this right out in the first chapter. We've beheld the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And the best way we can describe it, it's full of grace and full of truth. John then wants you to hope, he's hoping his Jewish reader is remembering backwards. So the Bible's all one connected story. And he's hoping you're going to remember this encounter that Moses had with God. So he's trying to string all this together back from Moses into this moment. And he's trying to help you. He wants you to remember this time when Moses said, God, I would like to see your face. And God says, Moses, that's not possible, but, but I'm going to get you to stand in the cleft of a rock. You might remember this from Exodus chapter 33. And I'm going to come down and I'm going to pass by. And so God comes down and passes by, and then this is what God says when he passes by Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. See, this is the God that's full of grace. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He's full of truth. See, the God that passes by Moses is the God that's full of grace and full of truth. And then John says, we've seen the person who's full of grace and full of truth. And then when we get to the hour, we're going to see the place where we see 
full of grace and full of truth. See, he intends you to walk along this long story and see that it's culminating in this hour. This is the hour. This is the, the whole elephant's coming down on us right at this particular point. It's hard to, hard to carry. So the cross is, is the place where we see full of grace and full of truth. So, so when we look at the cross particularly, we're, we're thinking about the glory of God. And what we're thinking about is this is where the real weight and reality of God's character is best displayed. You can see it in many ways, but this is the place that you sort of get the full weight. So that's point number two. Point, well, point number one. Point number two. Now, there are three ways that I want to point out that display the glory. There's lots of ways we could talk about it, but I want to just be limited to the text here. Three ways this particular text displays glory. And number one, if you're writing these down, number one, glory is displayed in the death of Jesus. Glory is displayed in the death of Jesus. Verse 27 my soul is troubled. Why is Jesus' soul troubled? Well, we know all at this hour, all the forces of evil are coming against Jesus. All the punishment that we deserve is going towards him. All the darkness, all the separation from God that... that he hasn't yet experienced all the stuff that we've created is now moving at, at great speed towards him. And, and on the cross, there's this exchange. And man, it's a great exchange for us. All of our disobedience to him, all of his obedience to, to us, all of his righteousness to us, all of our unrighteousness to him. It's this incredible exchange is happening, but it's great for us, but it's, it's troubling for Jesus. He's about, he's about ready to carry this weight. In Luke chapter 22, he says this to his enemies, this is your hour. This is your hour when darkness reigns. This, this hour has come on the good shepherd. All the forces of evil are coming in to get to the sheep. And what does the good shepherd do? He doesn't run away. What is this person, Jesus, what Paul calls the second Adam, what does he do when evil tries to come in? He doesn't do like the first Adam and just stand aside and let it happen to creation. The good shepherd stands in front and says, I'm going to lay down my life for my sheep. And that's glorious. That is a glorious thing. You hear small little stories all the time about somebody who, who interjected themselves to save somebody. And it's a great, you go, wow, that's awesome. Imagine the creator interjecting himself between you and a rightful, righteous judge. Could have stood by, could have run away, but it's glorious that he, he stands in. He's the, he's the good shepherd the, the, the hour is glorifying because instead of you and I experiencing the full weight 
and full force of evil. We, we experience the full force of grace. And it's glorious. Second thing here underneath this second point. God's glory is displayed by the defeat of Satan. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, Satan, be cast out. So God's glory is displayed by the defeat of Satan. We have to think about this carefully. If you remember the very first hint... If you've been coming here, you should know this. The very first hint of the defeat of Satan was found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's this promise that God makes in the garden. Hey, you guys have messed it up, but something's going to happen. Somebody's going to come from this woman, and in in the process of crushing this evil, he's going to be wounded. And so from Genesis 3.15, you might look at the Bible and say, we're always waiting for who this person's going to be. And we find out it's Christ. He's the the second Adam, as uh, Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. The, The Bible tells us the first Adam was a real man and also a representative man. So when Adam fell, all of humanity fell. Every human is a fallen human being because Adam is our representative. And the Bible also tells us that there was a second Adam. This is Jesus. He's a real person, but he's also a representative person. Meaning that since Jesus lived a, a, perfectly, a perfect life according to God's commands, his death is a perfect substitution for our life. And he secures salvation for everybody Who puts their faith in him. Let's just read from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this. Just as death came into the world through a man. Why do bad things happen? Because of sin. And the worst of those things is death. And they came in through the world. Through a man. Adam. And now the resurrection from the dead. Was begun through another man. Jesus. The second Adam. As Paul wants to refer to him. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So are you tracking with that? It's very important to understand what's happening here in the world. And so I want us to see how Satan is defeated here at the cross. First of all, Satan is successfully defeated because in the first Adam, he was able to get the first Adam to be tempted. And then he spends... 30 years or so, trying to tempt this second Adam, Jesus, to fall away from God's command. You might remember in the wilderness, constantly trying to tempt Jesus. He he brings Jesus' own family against Jesus. He brings all the religious authorities against Jesus. He brings uh, his own disciples against Jesus. Remember when Peter said, hey, Jesus, let's not go this way, the way of the cross. What did did Jesus say to, to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. See, you have a different plan, and I'm not going to go down that plan, and I'm not going to be tempted by Satan. I'm, not, I'm going to be able to resist Satan's temptation. And then in the last few hours of Jesus' life, you might say, all hell breaks loose on Jesus, hoping that at any moment he would be disobedient, and yet he's not. He never turns away from the plan and commands of God. So when we sing, great is thy faithfulness, oh, what a great song. He's been faithful. 
And his righteousness, his obedience now can be ours. So first way God is glorified is, is in Jesus is he defeats, Jesus defeats Satan's temptation. And even greater in some ways is that Satan was defeated at the cross for all those who place their trust in him. See, see what, what, how Satan was defeated is that Satan is a, called an accuser. And so what he wants to do is he wants to get God on the ropes and bring the sheep in, me, you, and everybody else, and say, see, this person messed up, and you're a God that's full of grace and truth. So they've got to pay. And Jesus stands in the way. says, no, no, I'm going to pay. And so the reason this is so glorious, and, and will one day, I pray, be particularly glorious for you, is one day you're going to stand in a courtroom in some kind before the Lord. And you're going to realize he's full of truth. And it's going to be terrifying. And Satan, the accuser, is going to bring in the Paul Phillips sin scroll. And it's going to be a big scroll. It's going to be, uh, we got the Phillips kid, uh, bring the trucks in scroll. It's not going to be a little scroll of a few sins. It's going to be a big old scroll. And as soon as Satan wants to say, okay, you know when Paul did, when Paul did, when Paul did, uh, you know what God's going to say? Paid in full. Totally paid. And he's going to cast Satan out of that courtroom. And I'm going to say, full of grace and full of truth. And he's going to look at me and say, you're a son of the Most High God. That's going to happen. But everyone will stand in that place. The question is, do you have the person standing in between the scroll of your sins and God's justice? When you do, it's glorious. It's glorious. Third thing here, the the glory of God is on display by drawing all people to him. Verse 34, 32. And when I can't, when I, and when I, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So it's glorious that God's drawing all people to himself. Over and over, John says this same phrase, whoever, whoever puts their faith in Jesus. John 3.16, so God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever, if you're a King James person, whosoever. John 8.12, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. John 10.9, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. John eleven twenty six. I am the resurrection and the light. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. See, it's whoever. God's glory is on display at the cross because eternal life is available to whoever. It's it's not in the world when when something great is happening in the world, it gets narrowed into kind of an exclusive club. Oh, 
you are the one who did this. And it's always exclusive. It always becomes what C.S. Lewis calls an inner ring. The way the world works is it it always works towards being exclusive. But for Jesus, he burst the inner ring and said, whoever. See, that's the whole thing with these these Greeks coming up to these Jews wanting to see Jesus. He's going to say, hey, at the cross, whoever wants to come can come. And it's glorious. It's glorious because I'm one of those people. I'm not the Jewish person. I'm the Greek person saying, is there any way I can get in? And he says, yes, you can get in, Paul. Whoever can get in. doesn't matter of your sins. I can pay for all of those sins. Just you come and you believe in me. Whoever would want to come. It's open to everybody. And it's glorious. See, the reason it's so helpful to see this is because there's, there's no distinctions made at the cross because what matters at the cross is not you. It matter, what matters at the cross is Jesus. Finally, let's see if we can tie this up to an application, verses 25 and 26. When you begin to wrestle with how glorious this is, then, then, and it begins to affect your life, then how do I live my life in the right way? That's why we're moving towards the Sermon on the Mount. How do I live a good and beautiful life according to Jesus? Verse 25. Let's start back with verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. So just two closing points here. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, I want you to know it's hard and it's glorious. It's, It's hard. There's no way you can escape that from just reading these few verses falling to the ground and dying, guess what? That's hard. Nobody raising their hand for that. When we get to the Sermon on the Mount and we say, I've got to deal with lust, I've got to deal with anger, I've got to deal with greed, I've got to deal with hypocrisy, you've got to die to those things. And guess what? That's hard. But it's glorious. It's, it's glorious because your dying is not in vain. It bears fruit. When people see that you're putting things to death by the power of the Holy Spirit, they say, I want to know about that person. And then they meet Christ, and the ring goes wider, and it's glorious. But you've got to fall to the ground, and you've got to die like a seed in order to bear much fruit. Hating your life in this world is hard. There's so many things about this life I love. And I could make them my God. So to not make them my God is hard. Martin Luther put it this way, let goods and kindred go. And then what does he say? This mortal life also. See, it's not just goods. It's not kindred, not just your family, it's your whole life. That's, giving that up is hard. 
yet it's glorious because when, when, you, when, you, when you've built your life, this is uh, Matthew 7, when you've built your life on the sand, it's not glorious because the world will come and wash it away. But when you've built your life on a rock that's never going to move, that's glorious. That brings the kind of peace that we were talking about in John 14. Finally, serving and following Jesus, especially when he says, take up your cross and follow me, that's hard. That's hard. But it's beyond glorious because God is going to look at you one day in verse 36, and he's going to say, you've become a son or daughter of light. Dying and becoming a servant and and letting these things go, they're all hard. But God, one day, all of his glory, all of his weight, all of his reality is going to shine on you. And that's going to be a glorious day. The reason we have to get these things in this stride as we make our way to the Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount, when you read it, it's hard. And in order to really understand it, you have to really understand that Jesus has paid it all. We don't want you to be like Sharon Radford was growing up thinking, well, God is good, but I got to keep my end of the bargain. And if I don't, maybe I'm not in heaven. That's not good. That's not glorious. What's glorious is that Jesus has paid it all. And when you get that in your soul, then you begin to live a different life. And it's a good and beautiful life. Let's pray together. Lord, so much here.
question, my, my exhortation, my challenge is, what, what team are you on? Or just, you just come, you sit, and you leave. You're excited about Christ Community Church. You're just not on a team. Well, whose arm is, are you holding up? What, what front-line ministry are you involved in? What, what if a year from now you'd look back and say, well, yeah, we, we went through this Bible, and it was great, but I, I, never was, I never got to know anybody. I never got on a team. I never went out and, and took any risk. I, I didn't do any of that. I don't want that to happen one more year. I want you to be on a team. And you remember the small group study you did, the sermon series, but you have names. You start having names that are part of your last chapter. You and I have to be on a team. We can get so much further, so much faster together, working on you internally and doing what God wants us to do externally. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful.